much for today. Uh, we are so thankful to have a day each week that you give us to reorient our hearts and our minds and to be reminded of what is true and what is good, uh, how beautiful you are. And uh, we thank you for that day today. We also thank you for the fellowship that we have together as your people. Uh, Because you have ransomed and redeemed us in Christ and our brothers and sisters in Christ as well, we are united together. We are connected together. So thank you for that gift of, uh, of, of fellowship and community that we have together. Help us to rejoice in uh, these wonderful truths of the gospel, but also in this, uh, the, the body of Christ that we have uh, with one another. We pray you bless our time together and use it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just jump right in so that we can get as much of the lesson in today as we can. Um, I'm going to begin by reading from John 17. If you want to follow along, you can. It's on page 903 in the Red Bibles. Uh, Continuing in in our class on core Christianity, today's lesson, uh, last time we talked about how Jesus uh, is God, and today's lesson is how God is three persons. Um, And Josiah... Could you cut this back just a little bit? I'm getting kind of a little bit of an echo. Thank you. Um, and so we're going to talk about how God is three persons, and that is the mysterious and wonderful and incredibly important doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, so we'll get a glimpse of that from, Matthew, or from uh, John 17, and then we'll uh, jump in and look at this passage a little bit. So John 17, is, uh, we're told that when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for the sake, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have, been, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you that these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, like we talked last week, there's a lot in this passage, and we're not going to be able to cover it all today. Uh, we're going to use it for a pretty specific purpose to kind of look at uh, this idea of uh, God in three persons. So in order to kind of just get the context of this passage a little bit, who are the various uh, persons or people that we see in John 17? Who are the people that are referenced? Okay, we see the Father in verse 1, right? Right off the bat, we see Jesus praying to the Father. Uh, who else? Jesus, right? In verse 1, 2, and 3, we see the Son. Uh, Jesus, the Son, is praying to the Father. Uh, who else are represented in, this, in these verses? So, say again. Where do you see that? Okay, verse 2. And uh, we could actually divide that up a little bit if you look at his prayer. Um, who does he pray for first? Look at, uh, it's in verses uh, 6 through 19. Who is he speaking about there? In particular, what believers? Yeah, he's talking about the ones that he's, he's been with, right? The disciples, his, his disciples that he has, he has been with. The people that he, when he was walking on this earth, those that he was uh, around. Um, and then in verses 20 through 26, he's praying for, uh, for who else? Yeah, he's praying for others who would learn about the truth through his disciples, right? Uh, and by extrapolation, that would be us, right? All of God's people. So, and, and whoever said that uh, all flesh, Liz said it, all flesh is right, it's actually divided up a little bit even more particularly where he's praying first for uh, those that he had been interacting with in the flesh and then those that will be God's people in the future um, as, as well. And then, if you look back in chapter 16, this is kind of part of the context. We didn't read it. Um, but if you look uh, at verse, uh, kind of toward the end of verse 4, down through verse 15, um, who's being referenced there? Jesus is speaking, and who's he, who's he talking about in particular? The Holy Spirit, right? So within this chapter and a half, we have... We have the Father reference, we have the Son reference, we have the Holy Spirit reference, and we have God's pe people both that were current when Jesus was walking the earth, as well as all of God's people throughout history. So again, we see this uh, interplay about these three persons of the one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, when we talk about the idea of the Trinity, what do we mean? Yeah. 
Is it a trick question? Why is... <laughs> or did I use the wrong word? Is that what you're saying? Who do we mean? What do we mean? Okay. Yeah. Uh, good. That's what I was. That's what I was trying to get at. So we're talking about this. Uh, this idea that there is one God, but God is in three persons revealed to us in the Scriptures: God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right. So, how important do you think it is that we understand this idea of the Trinity? Somebody said something. Very. Kevin said very. <laughs> um, how easy do you think it is to understand it? <laughs> so we have something that's very important for us to understand and not very easy to understand it, right? Um, yeah, that's right. In fact, if somebody would be so bold as to take the Bibles that are on your laps and turn to the book, chapter, and verse that tells us uh, and gives us the word Trinity. Surely you can do it. <laughs> Elder Emeritus Hogue. <laughs> would we allow you to read between the lines? Well, the answer to that ultimately would be yes. Right? I mean, the, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the scriptures, right? But the concept of what we're talking about, one God in three persons, is all throughout the scriptures. Not just the passage we've looked at today, but we'll look at some other ones as well. This idea of the Trinity has uh, an incredible um, importance for us to understand in terms of understanding who God is, but also in terms of how we live our lives. We'll talk about that at the end. Now, what are some illustrations or some analogies that you have heard or maybe even that you've used, although you don't have to admit that you've used them, uh, but what are some illustrations or analogies that you have heard uh, to describe the Trinity? <laughs> That's a reference to, uh, to a video that if we have enough time, we're going to watch here at the end of our class today. Um, and he knew that, so that's the reason why. He, at least I think that's why. He said that. <laughs> yeah, give, give me some. Give me some analogies. Give me some illustrations that you've heard. Phases of water. Phases of water, meaning vapor and the, the so the three different phases of water represent the the three persons of the Trinity. Okay, that's that is certainly one that's used a lot, Chris. <laughs> Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's an interesting one. I'm not sure that I've heard that one before, so that's a new one. <laughs> and you're saying it's actually a good thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> good, good. What else, Jerome? What other illustrations have you heard to try to describe the Trinity? Mind, body, and spirit. Okay. Joe? heard where I'm one person, but I'm a father to my children, and I'm a son to my parents. So you have different you have different roles, different modes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Other other ones? Ben? Fire, light, heat. Fire, light, and heat. Okay. The what? Three leaf clover. That one actually has some historical reference that we'll hopefully be able to think about a little bit at the end of our class if we get to it. 
triangles, different sides of the triangles, different points and symbols, yeah? Yeah, there are lots of them out there, right? We've heard some, most of the common ones and, and some that are, I haven't heard before but, but are also uh, used out there as well. Um, and the problem with all of those is that they're all wrong <laughs> um, and in one way or another, which gets back to what we were saying. It's so important that we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, and yet it's so hard for us to get our minds around it. We, we strain <laughs> to come up with some analogy, some way to make sense of it, right? Some way to look out in our world and to take something and to try to, to, to put it together and helping us to understand and relate to it. Um, but it's almost as if we're not meant to do that <laughs> because anything that we try to use, um, although some may be better than others, they all fail in some way or another. Okay, well, let's watch this video of uh, Michael Horton, um, assuming that I can get this to work correctly. not wanting to play. What do Christians mean when they describe God as a trinity? Is this idea taught in the Bible? Does it even make sense? How can God be both three and one at the same time? And why is this doctrine even important in the first place? First, the doctrine of the trinity doesn't imply that God is both three and one in the same way, which of course would be a contradiction. Rather, Christians maintain that God is one in essence and three in persons. To understand what this means, we have to look at a number of important texts in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 6.4, we find Israel's famous creed of monotheism, or belief in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in the book of Matthew, Jesus affirms the essence of this creed when he says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In the same way, the Apostle Paul expressed his hope in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
And yet, in the opening verses of John's Gospel, we also find the following statements about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here we're forced to come to terms with the fact that Jesus is mysteriously described as God, yet somehow also with God. In other words, God the Son is distinct from God the Father, but both the Father and the Son are identified as God. Spirit is also identified as God, but distinct from the Father and the Son. In Acts 5, for example, Peter confronts two people who lied to the Holy Spirit. But he goes on to say they haven't lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit is also presented as distinct from the Father and the Son during that scene of Jesus' baptism. As Jesus comes out of the water, the Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, and the voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned again in the words of the Great Commission, as Jesus commands his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Some people have tried to argue that Father, Son, and Spirit are just different names for the same person or different ways of speaking about the one true God. But in reality, the biblical narrative is far more interesting and complicated. For example, before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed to the Father saying, Not my will, but thine be done, showing that Father and Son are distinct persons. And Jesus describes the Spirit as a person, not as a force, saying, he will bear witness about me. Now, there are also some who claim that though Jesus is divine, he's not quite as divine as the Father. In other words, they say he's like a great archangel created by God before all other things. The problem with this view is that Jesus isn't described in Scripture as a creature, even as the first and greatest one, but as the creator. And in the book of Revelation, John's actually rebuked for worshiping an angel instead of God, Yet, by the end of the book, all the saints are found worshiping at the throne of God and the Lamb. Many in our day dismiss the doctrine of the Trinity as non-essential because they say, well, it makes little difference to religious experience and practical Christian living. But in reality, people do experience the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in distinctive ways. We're adopted by the Father as co-heirs with Christ. We're redeemed by Jesus' atoning blood and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit who regenerates and renews us. And in response to all this gracious work, we worship God in the light of his self-revelation, praying to the Father through the merit of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't the fruit of ivory tower speculation or religious imagination. The facts of history, particularly as they were revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, forced the first Christians to think about God in a way they never could have invented among themselves. To recap, the Bible teaches that God is one in essence and three in persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I'm Mike Horton for Core Christianity.
let's go back over a little bit of what he said um, and just think about a couple different passages that he mentioned. Um, the Bible teaches us several things about the Trinity, even though the word is never used. We read about the fact that God is one. And he referenced the, the famous passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 um, uh, called the Shema or something that uh, all... Uh, Jews, certainly uh, during the time that this was written, but also even today, uh, many of the Orthodox Jews memorize this as the very youngest of the young. Uh, hear, O Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this idea that there is one God, He is one. We also see that uh, in the New Testament in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, as Paul was writing uh, that letter to the church there. Uh, chapter 4, he talks about how there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to, to, to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we see the Bible's clear about the fact that God is one, but we also see the Bible's clear that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct Persons. Now, we looked at John 17 earlier in Jesus' prayer, both in John 16 and 17, and we see uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit uh, all at, at work there. Um, another great passage, uh, he mentioned, he referenced it, he didn't uh, quote it, but um, the passage that we have in Matthew chapter 3 that gives us uh, the record of Jesus' baptism. Uh, we read in Matthew 3 that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would, be, would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So we see all three persons of the Trinity, uh, God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ being baptized, the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ at his baptism and the voice from heaven Talking about that being his beloved son. So we see not only that God is one, but also that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we also see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God that are equal in power and glory. They all are, have different responsibilities and work in creation and redemption. We see in Genesis 1 that uh, God is uh, creating out of nothing, and we see the Holy Spirit of God hovering over the deep. And in John 1, we hear that uh, Jesus was obviously very present at creation. Uh, all things were created through him and by him and for him and for his glory. So we see not only that God is one, that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, but that they all have work in creation and in Redemption. Um, I think one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture, certainly one that kind of gets at this, I won't read the whole passage, but you can write it down and look at it later today, is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Um, there Paul really gives us this incredible picture of all three persons in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three being at work in redemption, in 
uh, and various aspects of God's master plan uh, that he has revealed to us uh, through his word and through the work of his son. So that's kind of basic uh, 101, very basic level uh, talking about what the Bible says about uh, God being one and God being three persons. As you might imagine, even as we might reflect here in this room, the early church struggled to try to understand that. Um, and there were lots of different ideas that were put forth. And I, I, by early church, I'm talking about the first few centuries after Jesus uh, died and was resurrected. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the early church councils that we refer to, the Council of Nicaea, uh, the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of Constantinople, these early church council, councils that happened in the uh, 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries, a lot of those councils were called, first and foremost, to deal with problems of uh, the church trying to understand what the doctrine of the Trinity meant and people that had views that were propounding views that were not correct. Uh, one of those people was one, considered one of the church fathers, Origen, uh, he lived from 184 to 253, and he basically taught that Jesus was uh, some form of a lesser God than the Father. Um, and you know, you don't have to go, you don't have to go too far uh, to get there on that. And uh, we think of like, how could you teach something like that? How could you believe something like that? But there are even uh, there, there's even some things going around in our churches and cultures today, and evangelical churches today, um, that kind of get at that same idea, although it's articulated a little differently. Um, there's a, a doctrine going around even currently, and even in some of our circles, called the eternal subordination of the sun, or ESS, if you, if you like acronyms. And even just how it's, what the words mean, the eternal subordination of the sun. Um, now, those that hold that or articulate in that view today um, would not want to say that Jesus is not God. But in how they try to describe that relationship, Jesus is subordinated to God himself. Um, and again, I'm, I'm waxing over it very, uh, in a, probably an unfair way. But my point is just that there are still things out there today where people are uh, not getting this correct. Um, another uh, controversy that happened was with uh, the man named Arius, who lived from 256 to 336. And his teaching basically was that the Father alone is God. Jesus is a created being who is underneath the Father, uh, who is underneath God himself. Now, what do we have around today that actually teaches that? There, there actually are people that believe that truth, or believe that that is truth. Who is that today? Uh, I don't know if the Unitarians would say that or not. The Jehovah's Witnesses definitely would, um, that Jesus was a created being. Um, and there are a lot of other people out there that, I mean, just de facto, that's what they believe about who Jesus was, that he was an angel, that he was some kind of a created being, that he's not actually God. Um, so there, there, throughout church history, there have been some that have made an argument that Jesus is somehow less than God. Um, but there are also, uh, in church history, there are some that argued that God appeared in different modes or different forms. 
uh, kind of the, the example that you'd heard about, you know, I'm, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a, I'm a man, you know, I have these different, these different modes, these different roles, these different responsibilities. That's actually an ancient church history, or a church uh, heresy. Um, by a man by the name of Sibelius in the 3rd century articulated that. And the church uh, got together and said, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. And um, it's referred to as, anybody know what the heresy is called? We, somebody mentioned it earlier in the service when we were kind of joking, but modalism, yeah, that there are different, you know, that there are different modes that God reveals himself in different modes or different roles or responsibility. It's actually a very common, I would say, misconception, misunderstanding um, today. So there are all these heresies that are running around. The church uh, really uh, sought to deal with those heresies and called various councils. Um, if you're sitting around one of the blue hymnals, uh, if you grab one, we have in the back of our hymnals, we have some confessions of faith that we use from time to time. The Westminster Confession of Faith is printed back there, as well as the Shorter Catechism. But before that, if you turn to page, uh, I think it's 845 and 846, uh, we have a couple creeds that are historic church creeds. And in particular, I want you to look at the one on page 846. Just to give this a little context for you so that you can, you know, when we use this creed, you can kind of connect it now with what we're talking about, with these heresies that were going on. If you look down at the bottom of page 846, they actually put a little paragraph in there telling us that the Nicene Creed originated at the Council of Nicaea in 325. That was one of those councils that was called to deal with some of these heresies about the Trinity. Um, and then it was expanded in an adopted form uh, by the Council of Chalcedon in 451. It was formulated to answer heresies that denied the biblical doctrine of the Trinity in the person of Christ. So there you go. Uh, when we use the Nicene Creed at Trinity, other churches that you're a part of, you're actually using a creed that was developed in the early beginnings of the, the church after Christ uh, was raised from the grave in order to combat certain heresies. And if you look at the Nicene Creed in particular, the way it's written in our hymnals, what does it show you here? Just look at the, the way the words are divided up. How many divisions are there? How many paragraphs are there? There are three, right? Why do you think there are three? <laughs> right? Each one is talking about one of the persons of the Trinity. And uh, if you look in particular um, about uh, the, in the second paragraph, the beginning paragraph, uh, we have one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, and then on down into his, his work. Um, that, that phrasing is directly related to the idea that Jesus is somehow less than God, somehow not uh, fully God. Um, so, again, just giving you some context and um, some perspective of when we're using some of these creeds, we're, we're actually tying into uh, joining our voices with some of these historic church councils that have tried to deal with some of these heresies. Uh, what do they mean by begotten? Okay, good ideas. Always wondered what that one means. <laughs> but you're wondering now. <laughs> okay, good. Thoughts, ideas? What's the word begotten made? There in the Nicene Creed, begotten, not made. 
born of somebody. Okay. Conceived by the Holy Ghost, right? And, and the Apostles' Creed. Liz? Yeah, I was going to say that usually, like in Old Translations, it's used to mean to father, like talking about conception. To father, it's talking about conception. Yeah, other? Carson? I was thinking of it as kind of being created out of a part of what it comes from, the Creator. Kind of. Being created out of, like a, part of a part of what it, was, what it came from. Okay, okay. Other thoughts there? I was trying to say that, but I was going to use the word substance. Okay. The substance of the Father imparted, some of that substance is Son. Okay. Okay. Somebody else said? Chris? Okay. Of his essence. Yeah. Uh, just as a portion of, as opposed to creating something new. So it's a portion of instead of creating something new. Okay. There, I think there are aspects of all that are being said that are, that are accurate. And yet we're also, we have to be careful because I think any of the things that we say, we can go, if we start drilling into them too far, even substance, right? Then we're talking about, well, I thought he was a spirit, right? And so, so you, there, I, it's just a great example. It's somewhat of a kind of an illustration here, a living illustration with the question, which is good. And I'll give you my thought in just a second. But it's just, we, we, it's one of those things where our language even is, um, is not sufficient. Uh, and we can, we can go... Um, we can go some places that not meaning to, but they can actually take us away from things that the Bible does teach us about it. So it's kind of one of those things that I think we have to be, we have to be careful, very, very careful with. But I think my understanding of that historically has been kind of going back to the Apostles' Creed with regard to the idea that Christ was born into this world through the Virgin Mary. So he was, he was born, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was... Uh, I, I think it's a reference to that, that he actually was born into this world as a man. So it, again, it's the, the fully divine but also fully man aspect. You have both fully God and fully man at the same time. Uh, but again, it's, it, I mean, we, our language is just not, we, anytime we try to drill into exactly what that, how we get into that, we're, gonna, we have, we, we're on thin ice to some degree. Well, but in the, in the sense that I, I think, again, I think, um, and I'd have to go back and do some, some looking in the church historical documents about this, but I think the sense there is that it's trying to hold in balance both the fact that he was before, Jesus said, I am, right? He, he doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have a birth in that sense. But in the other sense, he is fully man. He was born into this world. And there was a means by which that happened, right? It was through the Holy Spirit, uh, through the conception of the Holy Spirit. And so um, that I, I, I think that's kind of what's going on there with that phraseology. But admittedly, I mean, it's, a, it's one of those things that can raise some questions in people's minds. Ben, you had your hand up. Yep. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, just think about the idea that um, in the first few hundred years after Jesus came, lived, died, was resurrected, and then ascended, just a few hundred years after that, imagine that's us sitting here in this room trying to understand these truths that we have in God's Word, but to explain them to the world, right? And just like I mean, it's just that easy for us to kind of get off track. It happened. Like we're, you know, we're no smarter, but we're no dumber than uh, than God's people in church history. And so um, th- that's a, it's a, that's why I say it's a good illustration of how easy it is for us to want to to drill down into details and specifics, and even and even look at the scriptures and what the scriptures say. But we can't get there to the degree that we want necessarily. So let me, um, I want to I get to this. Uh, I'm going to be in trouble if I don't show this second video. Um, and we don't have a whole lot of time here. But um, some of you have seen the video um, that uh, is kind of a parody about uh, St. Patrick uh, going to Ireland to evangelize Ireland. Um, I won't go into all the church history of that. But um, because it's addressing... Uh, Patrick's attempt to describe the Trinity to Irishmen um, and his and his failure to attempt and these Irishmen trying to put Patrick in his place. Um, it's it's a little bit of a of a of a uh, fun kind of thing to kind of give him the lesson for today. So let's see if I can get this uh, working again here. Depends on where they originated from. So, um, yeah, the the Nicene Creed would have been in Greek, um, but the the other creeds that were written, there were that, sure for sure. I mean, we're tra- we're reading a translation of a of a creed that was written, not only a translation but an ancient translation, right? Yeah. All right, let's see if we can get this working here. All right, there's Patrick. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, The Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. 
Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously... I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. some Lutheran brothers and sisters in Christ to thank for that. Um, let, me, uh, let me finish. Uh, we're, at the, we're at the stopping point for the class today, but um, let me just talk real quickly about some of the ways that the doctrine of the Trinity are very applicable for us. Um, one, uh, Horton m mentioned in his uh, quick summary, um, it, the, the idea of the Trinity actually helps us to worship we come to uh, worship, obviously, God in his totality, but we come to the Father through the means of the Son and his redeeming work on the cross and by the power and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So we think about every time we gather together, um, and a lot of times you'll hear the beginning prayer that we use uh, in our service or at different parts in the service, we'll pray and, and, and acknowledge all three persons of the, of the Godhead, um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because that's, to think of it that way, it gives us that sense of how we are coming, what we're, who we're coming to worship, what, why we're here, and how we're actually able to be here. Um, another, another kind of way that is very practical, the doctrine of the Trinity, is um, it teaches us something about the unity of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons, are working in perfect unity. That's that Ephesians 1 passage that we see, the Matthew 3 passage. We see all three persons of the Godhead working together perfectly in unity. And it gives us a model for what we're supposed to be like as God's people, right? We ought to be unified as God's people uh, in, in, in kind of connection with and thinking about how uh, the three persons of the Trinity are working perfectly in all eternity.
uh, in unity. So again, it gives us this, this not only a, an understanding of what we're doing when we worship, but also a sense of what we're supposed to be doing in fellowshipping together and having community together. That this idea of being united to our brothers and sisters in Christ is not just an, a nice idea. It's actually something that the creation has been wired to understand because of who God is and his very essence and his nature. And then the last thing I'll say is this. Um, if you think that you completely understand the Trinity, then uh, I think you're missing one of the other key points of this, and that is the incomprehensibility and the mystery of God, right? I get asked all the time, can you explain to me how we believe that God is sovereign and yet he holds us responsible for our actions, right? Well, we can go into scriptures and we can kind of dig into that, but at some point we get to the point where we say, I have to affirm both of these things because the Bible teaches me both of these things. But can I explain them so that my mind is completely comfortable and at ease? No. Can I, can I understand the doctrine of the Trinity to a certain degree? Certainly. I can look in the scriptures. I can look at these passages we've talked about. I can see that God is one and yet he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I can see uh, these interactions and, how, uh, I, I, and I can give glory to God for this. But at the end of the day, there has to be some aspect of mystery and incomprehensibility. It, it should move us to be in awe. It should move us uh, to truly worship our God. Um, and even greater ways. So I need to stop because we're at the end of the class. Um, but um, I, I hope that you get a sense of the practicality of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and yet how, how easy it is for us to get off track. And how much we must stay with the scriptures. And what the scriptures teach us. And not go beyond what the scriptures give us. So let me, uh, let me finish by uh, closing in prayer and then we'll uh, transition to either heading home if you've been to the first service already or, or beginning the second service. Father, we do thank you so much that we can come to you uh, because of the redeeming, ransoming work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you have filled us with the Holy Spirit so that uh, we are able to come to you and, uh, and to, to know and understand you as you reveal yourself to us in the word. Um, thank you, Father, for teaching us about who you are. And yet I pray that even as we try to plumb the depths of these wonderful, mysterious truths, that you would also help us uh, to be content with what you do give us to understand uh, in your word. And help us, Father, guard us, protect us from going beyond what your word says. Um, and we pray, Lord, that you would always keep us faithful uh, to who you are and uh, help us to dig deeper into this wonderful uh, trinity of, uh, of persons in the Godhead and how you are at work in such beautiful ways. And, and may that move us to love you in even greater ways and uh, to be in awe of your beauty and majesty. We pray that you would be with us the rest of today um, as we go through the second service. And particularly, Father, as we gather this afternoon and this evening to fellowship and have unity with one another. Uh, give us encouragement from that in our picnic this afternoon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.